Thanks, Annie. If you don't have a Bible, you might uh, you probably be helped by one, because uh, we won't have anything coming up. Well, we might have Malachi coming up on the uh, on the uh, screen, but the other references won't be coming out because I had a choice of writing the sermon or doing the PowerPoint, and uh, I decided to write the sermon instead. Uh, there are full there are texts uh, out in the uh, uh, foyer. Uh, let's ask God to help us understand his word. Our gracious uh, heavenly Father, as uh, through your prophet, your messenger, you spoke directly uh, to your people of old, uh, so we pray we would hear you speaking to us tonight. And we pray that through your word, you are growing us such a trust in you that we can uh, live your way, that we can use all that you give us uh, to do what you command, to bring you honour and glory. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to understand it and to receive it with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, now, at this point of the book of Malachi, if you've been paying attention, you're probably wondering uh, why God has put up with this people. I mean, they start off by doubting his love. Uh, we're then shown leadership priests who treat God with active contempt. There is a constant rejection of God's word. Every time God says something, they say, no, 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 how can that be? Oh, there are abusive relationships amongst them, unfaithfulness that will compromise the existence of the nation in introducing idolatry and abandonment of people to whom they owe loyalty, and they just keep on complaining. We saw that last week, 2.17, making God the problem. You have wearied the Lord with your words. You say, how have we wearied him? Everyone who does good is right in the sight of the Lord. You think, why does God put up with this people? But God is putting up with them, persevering with them, and in verse 6 of this passage he tells us why. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I, the Lord, do not change. It's a wonderful statement, and it's a statement that is laden with both hope and threat. See, God says he will never be any other than the God he has declared himself to be. He is the great I am, dependent on no one for his being. He is the one who, because of that, rules over all. Oh, yes, he is the one who said that he will be merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the, on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He will never not be that God. Oh, and, and that means he will never deviate from his purpose and never go back on his promises. I, the Lord, do not change. There's nothing that will stop him from fulfilling his purpose or keeping his promise. 
Oh, but it also means that he will never stop hating what he has declared he hates. However much what uh, our society might, as, have, uh, might approve has changed, God won't change. He will never stop hating what he's declared he hates. And that's, of course, why all rebellion against him will fail. I, the Lord, do not change. You will never stop me from being God. And it's also why there's always hope. I, the Lord, do not change. And he's told us he is the God who doesn't delight in the death of sinners, but rather that they would turn and live. I, the Lord, do not change. That's why those who entrust themselves to him by believing his promises are always <coughs> secure and can always be confident. That God is unchanging means for sinful Israel <coughs> hope, despite the fact that they haven't changed either. I, the Lord, <coughs> do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. God knows the character of his people. You notice that he calls them the children of Jacob and that's quite two-edged. <laughs> he made Jacob promises, yes, but Jacob actually was a deceiver. And like father, really, like son. You have turned aside from my statutes and not kept them from the beginning. And that's true. The history of the people of Israel is one of continuous rebellion, isn't it? God rescues them from Egypt, brings them to Mount Sinai, says you'll have no other gods before me. Moses goes up the mountain and they make a golden calf. Oh, they're led through the wilderness to the border of the promised land. And God says, go up and take possession. And they say, no, we won't. You get to the book of Judges and constantly they forget God. They go and worship other gods. God rescues them. And then they do it again. Move on. And they ask for a king, rejecting God as their king. And then, of course, you have these kings who repeatedly fail to honour God. Kings who, like Solomon, introduces, introduce idolatry into the life of God's people. In fact, Malachi is speaking to people who have returned from exile, where the sin of the God's people provoked him to the extreme judgment of destroying Jerusalem and taking them out of the land. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes. Malachi is still addressing their lack of fear of God. They're despising God. They're blaming God. God knows his people. But because he has chosen Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, because he has made them the object of his electing love, I have loved you. That's how the book starts. I have loved you. Because he has made them the object of a love they refuse to recognise, God takes the initiative 
and calls them back to himself. Return to me, he says, and I will return to you. Now, the language of return is the language of repentance. It's a picture language, isn't it, of somebody who has gone away, gone away, broken a relationship, as it were, turned and left the home. It's the language of the prodigal coming back to his father. It's the language of saying, actually, I've been wrong to pursue that direction where I just pleased myself, and I'm coming back to listen to you and do what you say. Return to me. Oh, yes, and it's also the language of the covenant. It's actually the language of Deuteronomy chapter 30. We'll be looking at uh, some other references in Deuteronomy 28 to 30. There God outlines the consequences, the blessings of obedience. Oh, yes, and the consequences of disobedience to the people. And at the end of that, he says in Deuteronomy 30, when, 30, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. God is actually calling them to recognise that they've experienced the judgement of disobedience to the covenant and then to turn back to God to act in accordance with his covenant, this relationship that he's formalised with them at Sinai and in the plains of Moab. God is taking the initiative. He is acting consistently with that relationship. He is being faithful to the relationship he has entered into with them. And he says to them, return. And he accompanies that summons with a promise, and I will return to you. Now, that's just a short phrase, but hopefully you recognise how amazing it is. God is saying that he will do what only he can do. You see, in saying, I'll return to you, he's saying that he will actually be the one who will deal with their sin to make it possible for he himself to return to relationship with them, to return them to the blessings of the covenant. We don't see now how he's going to do it, but it involves... God dealing with their sin. Return to me, he says, and I will return to you. It's an incredibly gracious promise when you consider all that they've done and are doing, as outlined in this book. Yet they say, how shall we return? <laughs> how shall we? I mean, we're here. We're in the promised land. Uh, we're making the sacrifices. We're doing the temple thing. We're worshipping you. What's the problem? They're unaware. They can't see what God is getting at. I mean, what more could he want? Yes, they're here. They're here in the promised land with their half-hearted religion which shows contempt for the holy almighty God. They're here not taking his word seriously but actually challenging it at every step. They're here doubting his love. They're here determined to do what they please in their personal relationships, who they marry, how long they stay married. Oh, they're here thinking that God is the one who's not keeping his side of the bargain. 
They're pretty out of touch really, aren't they? But you can be here in church like that too. Just going through the motions, not thinking there's anything more, doubting God's love for you, not listening to him really, where it really matters in your relationships. How are we to return? God focuses then his call for repentance. He, he points to an area that they're so obviously falling short and where again their heart is revealed. Will a man rob God? Will a human rob God? Now at first sight that sounds such an absurd question, doesn't it? How could you rob the almighty God? He needs nothing from us. We couldn't take anything from him. I mean, he's the one who gives to all people life and breath and everything. How can you rob God? <coughs> Yet we rob God when we do not give him what we owe him. And we owe God, don't we? Think of what we owe God. We owe him every breath we take. We owe him our trust because he's almighty and his word is sure. We owe him our service. We owe him our praise, our obedience, our sacrifice, our love. We owe God. And that's especially true for you if you say you're a believer. Remember what Paul says? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Glorify God with your body. You owe God everything twice over. He has made you his own. You belong to him. Will a man rob God? Yet you, he says, are robbing me. The people of God were not giving God what they owed him. In fact, they're entirely unaware. How have we robbed you? They say. Now we don't know whether that's because they're ignorant, because the priests have failed in their task of teaching the people, or whether they're actually just being dismissive of God's expectations because they've decided that actually what God demands is actually just unreasonable. I mean, times were tough. They don't feel they're getting blessed by God as they ought that he's let them down. How have we robbed you? Well, God's very clear, in tithes and offerings. Now, they're, they're probably bringing some, just like they're making half-hearted sacrifices with the worst of the animals. You see, verse 10 says, bring the full tithe. Uh, they're probably paying a, a, a bit of lip service, you know, a, a, a little bit to keep God going, to keep him on side just in case he gets active again. But they're not doing what they've commanded. Now, what does it mean when he says, in your ties and contributions? Despite Christians often using that language, uh, we are often unfamiliar with what it involves. So this is Leviticus 27. The references are there in the outline. A tithe is just another word for a tenth. So this is the CSV. It says, Every tenth of the land's produce, grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It's holy to the Lord. 
If a man decides to redeem any part of this tenth, he must add a fifth to its value. Every tenth animal from the herd or flock which passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. Right? Every tenth, whether it's of your fruit or your grain or whatever, of your livestock, it belongs to God. It's separated to God. And they were to give that tenth every year. And then the third year, Deuteronomy 26, it says this. When you have finished paying all the tenth of your produce in the third year, the year of the tenth, you are to give it to the Levites, resident aliens, fatherless children and widows, so they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. So a tenth of everything belongs to the Lord, and then every third year they are to use that to provide for others, the widows, the poor, the aliens, yes, and the Levites. So he used some every year to celebrate God's goodness when they went up to his presence in the temple. But the tenth was actually used to sustain others, to sustain the temple, its worship, and those who served there, the priests and Levites, and to sustain and support the poor. In robbing God, they were actually robbing others as well. And offerings were offerings given in fulfilment of a vow or the portion of the sacrifices that were for the priesthood. And so in many ways that was the priest's livelihood as well. Now the important thing to see about these tithes, these tents and these offerings, is that they were not voluntary contributions. It wasn't something you could think, oh, if I had a good year, pay the tenth. No. These were obligations of the covenant. They were commanded by God in his law. It was part and parcel of being his people. Obligatory. Oh yeah, commanded for their good, of course, because it sustained the worship of the temple. It sustained the making of sacrifices which allowed God to dwell with his people. It sustained the poor. But they were commanded. And the people of Malachi's day were not bringing the full tenth, the full tithe in. They were disobeying. Perhaps they thought the season's been bad. We've only really just got enough to get by. But actually they were still to bring the tenth in. And in fact, those bad seasons were actually a warning. You see that verse 9? You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Notice that, how hard it is to stand out against the crowd to do what God says. But God's saying here that because of their disobedience, they were experiencing the covenant punishment, the covenant curse. You see, again, God had said in Deuteronomy 28, when he's outlining the consequences of obedience and disobedience, being faithful or unfaithful to the covenant, he said, if you do not obey the Lord your God by carefully following all his commands and statutes I am giving you today, all these curses will come and overtake you. And one of them, verse 38, you will sow much seed in the field but harvest little because locusts will devour it. You'll plant and cultivate vineyards but not drink the wine or gather the grapes because worms will eat them. Now, because of their disobedience, God says you're cursed. But that, in a sense, was a warning. That lack of fruitfulness in their fields was a warning that they were 
under God's judgment. But they turned that warning into a reason for further faithless disobedience, to not bring that tenth. And so God says to them, you need to change your mind and your behaviour. God makes clear, in a sense, the specific content of their repentance, of their returning to him. They had to trust him enough to do what he has said with what he has entrusted to them. That is, they had to trust him enough to do what he has said with what he has entrusted to them. That would be the sign, the expression of their returning to him, of their repentance. And what had he commanded? Bring the whole tithe, the whole tenth in, not just a bit of it, but all. And that's what they were struggling with. You see, the problem was they thought they were the owners. And so they had a right to negotiate with God to do as they pleased with what was there. Oh, they'd come to love the gift more than the giver. In fact, they'd come to forget the giver. They thought that they, in a sense, were the producers of their own wealth and they were giving of their own to God and so they could negotiate. But the reality was everything they had come from God and they were stewards. They had been entrusted with what they had. It wasn't their own, but God's given to them to use as God commanded. They had to think of themselves as stewards and the thing about a steward, the most important thing about a steward is that he or she is faithful in following their master's instructions. All was God's. The land itself, the fruitfulness of the fields, their very lives. So God says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And so put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. God makes an extraordinary promise to the repentant, doesn't he? He says, test me. <laughs> now other parts of the Bible says you will not put the Lord your God to the test. But that's a different kind of test, you see. This is not the proud doubting of God's word, the kind of testing of God that the people of Israel undertook in the wilderness. There, you know, God had given them a clear promise and they refused to believe it. <laughs> They'd actually demanded that God do more before they trust him. They were demanding, in a sense, that God relate to them on their terms before they believed him. This is a testing where we call the shots, as it were, and God has to meet our approval, pass our test, before we'll commit to him. That's the kind of testing that we must not do. But God's call to test him here is actually a call by God to take him at his word. And that's what we all have to do every day. God is saying, take me at my word and find me faithful to my covenant, to my commitments made to you in the covenant. Again, Deuteronomy 28. There it says, for example, when they 
keep the covenant, the blessings of the covenant, then all the peoples of the earth, verse 10, will see that you bear the Lord's name and they'll stand in awe of you. The Lord will make you prosper abundantly with offspring, the offspring of your livestock and your land's produce in the land the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open for you his abundant storehouse, the sky. Sounds like Malachi, doesn't it? He'll open his abundant storehouse, the sky, to give your land rain in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. God is saying, take me at my word. I will keep my promises, my commitments to you. Trust me that I can. That is, trust me that I am the Lord the Lord of creation. I'm the one who sends the sun and the rain. I'm the one who gives growth to the plants. And yes, I control even the insects. I'm in control. I can keep my promise. And then God says that as a consequence of relating to him in repentance and faith, they would enjoy peace with God. All the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight. They'll enjoy peace with the God who had entered into them graciously in covenant relationship. They'll be the people God has called them to be and their land would be a foretaste of Eden, a renewed Eden, a land of delight. They will show in life to the rest of the world how good it was to trust and obey the living God. They'll be a holy priesthood, a royal kingdom, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God says, take me at my word. You'll find me faithful and you'll show to all how good it is to be mine. Well, are you robbing God? Straightforward question. Is God calling you tonight to return to him by giving God his due? Remember, we owe him. And if you're a believer, you owe him everything. Is God calling you tonight to return to him by giving him the trust that shows itself in obeying God's word? That in particular shows itself in obeying God in the way you use the material things he's entrusted to you because you know that he is Lord of creation. Is God calling you to return to him by showing that you trust him in the way you use your money and resources. Let's just think about that, because this is a passage which is easy to misapply. You know, people can equate the church with the temple, and what God commands in relation to the support of the temple becomes what's commanded in relation to the support of the church, but that's not true. Our people will use this passage to tell you to tithe, that you know you become a member of this church and you've got to give a tenth of your income, and we can debate whether it's pre-tax or post-tax. You know, <laughs> to us, right? Oh, people can use this passage to suggest that if you give to God, our oh, God will give to you, and you'll be secure. But all of that is misapplication. The New Testament never calls or commands believers to tithe. Giving a tenth is not mentioned in the New Testament to any of the churches. And this passage isn't about securing your prosperity by trading with God. 
you know, where you're encouraged to give for what God will give you. This is about being faithful, about calling God's people back to be faithful in covenant relationship and so knowing God's faithfulness to his covenant. And the prosperity gospel is actually the opposite. You know that gospel that says God will enrich you if you give to him. And usually it works like this. You send a tenth to me and support my work as the wonderful evangelist I am and God will give you a hundredfold. It's a really good bargain actually for me. You know, you can come and talk to me afterwards if God doesn't deliver for you, but I'll still have your tenth. So that's good, right? So we're ahead at least, sorry. Uh, but you see, the prosperity gospel is actually the opposite of being in covenant relationship with God because to be in covenant relationship with God is first of all to say God is king. He calls the shots. I trust him. But the prosperity gospel keeps self first and it's actually an attempt to use God to further your own material prosperity. That is not trust in God as king but transaction with God as servant. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours and I can be disappointed and angry if you don't deliver. It's a lie. And let me say, it isn't the faith of the Old Testament. Remember the Old Testament's got the book of Job in it. A righteous man who was very poor. The Old Testament, who's got Psalm 73 that wonders about why the wicked prosper. The Old Testament, Proverbs 30, that says, give me neither poverty nor riches. You know, lest I become proud and forget you, or lest I steal. The Old Testament that Hebrews 11 tells us contain many people who look beyond this world and rewards in this world to the city that had its foundations, that had foundations, the heavenly city. We mustn't misapply this passage. But just because it's abused, we also mustn't fail to apply this passage and actually to ask ourselves as God's people, are we robbing God by not giving him what is his due? I've already said, if you're a believer, what you owe God is everything. Remember 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own, you are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Or Romans 12, what is our spiritual worship, our reasonable worship? It's to present our bodies to God as living sacrifices to do his will as he transforms our minds. And when you present your body, that's giving yourself without remainder. It all belongs to God. Now that shouldn't surprise you if you're a believer because that's how you started the Christian life. That's, in a sense, the entry commitment. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will find it. To be a believer is to give your life up to Jesus, to do exactly what he said, to go where he goes. To be a believer is to know that all we are and all we have is God's. And so you ought to ask, does that consciousness, that awareness, show itself in the way you use your material resources. How? How? How do we show we trust the unchanging faithful God in the way we use what he's entrusted to us? Well, we show it by 
using it according to his word, what he's commanded. How does God command us to use our money, to use what's entrusted to us? Well, his word's pretty clear. If you don't look after your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. So you've got to use it to support your family. 1 Thessalonians 4, it says you should work, earn your living, so that you will not be dependent on anyone. And so we should use our money to be self-supporting, self-sufficient. It tells us we ought to pay tax. It tells us we should be generous to the poor. Galatians 2, the apostles, uh, Peter and uh, John and James, have only one requirement of Paul, and that is that he remembers the poor, which he says, very thing I was eager to do. Oh, yes, we ought to use it to support gospel workers. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, where, where Paul is... Uh, busily, in a sense, saying he doesn't want to make use of this privilege, he, makes, he says this very clear. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So one of the things we do with our money is to support gospel workers. Let him who is taught share all good things with him who teaches. And yes, we're meant to support the spread of the gospel. Paul describes the gifts given by the Philippians to support well, what really is his own missionary work as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable to God. Acceptable and pleasing to God. So scripture does tell us what we should be doing with our money. And if we're going to honour the faithful God, we should use our money to do the things he's commanded us. But, you know, we can read our New Testament, we can see that, and we can engage in all those things, you know, look after the family and you know, support the church and, yeah, yeah, make sure we've got an AFES worker on the payroll. And, you know, we can, we can do all that, right? And still think we're doing God a favour and still do it reluctantly or anxiously. Still think, I've given God his bit. The rest is mine to do with as I please. But if you're a believer, you actually have to see that God is calling for more from us. Right? You know, the New Testament doesn't tell you to give a tenth because the New Testament knows that every believer knows that all they have belongs to God. And what God is calling for is, in a sense, a certain ambition that will engage us and all we have. The New Testament wants us to think of ourselves as servants and stewards. Servants, Matthew 25, whose ambition is to enhance our master's assets and standing in the world by using what's entrusted to us and using all that's entrusted to us for that purpose. Servants who are content with what our master gives us. That's right. You actually rob God when you are discontent and give yourself to love of money. Servants who faithfully use and don't stop using what God has entrusted them for their master's work. And we're called to be stewards. Stewards who, again, know that we will be accountable for the way we use what's entrusted to us. Students, stewards who listen to God. And God calls us to store up treasure in heaven with what's entrusted to us. Remember, not to store up treasure on earth, 
God calls us, 1 Timothy 6, if we have money, to be rich in doing good. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. You see, those who are servants and stewards don't ask, have I given enough? People often actually come to me, should I give a tenth? Because they're in the Old Testament, should I give a tenth? I say, no, maybe far too little, maybe too much, but it may be far too little. And actually, what does it matter? The, the amount is actually secondary to the heart. You see, it's not a question of saying, have I given enough, but actually asking, what can I do with what God has entrusted to me to bring honour to Jesus' name? Because we are servants and stewards. What can I do with what God has entrusted to me to bring honour to Jesus' name? And there is lots of opportunity to do good. You know, there's opportunities in our congregation. We have needs. We'll be employing more people. There are opportunities for AFES. Oh, there's opportunities to support uh, people going overseas like Mel or the Shorts or, or any of our missionaries. Oh, there's opportunities to do good to the poor whether it's through supporting local charities like the Salvos or T there are lots of opportunities. So are you that kind of servant and steward who asks, what can I do with what God has entrusted to me to bring honour to Jesus' name? What kind of servant and steward are you? And let me say, if there was an audit of the way you use your money now, would there be evidence of regular deposits in heaven? Those are just an idea. We should pursue doing good because we think God is faithful. We should be ambitious to do good and be generous because that's being like our God. And we should be ambitious to do good and be generous because our faithful God has given us good Promises. You heard one read, Matthew 6, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be yours as well. And, you know, I haven't met a believer who's been a believer for 30, 40, 50 years who hasn't found that promise to be true. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be yours as well. But that's just one of the kind of promises God gives us. 1 Corinthians 9. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. For God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all that you need in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way through all your generosity, which through God, through us produces thanksgiving to God. My God, says Paul in Philippians, is able to supply all your needs. These are to do with the real world. These aren't spiritualised promises. 
These are actually about putting food on your table, providing all you need. God rules the world. He's the source of our prosperity, not our hard work, brilliance or luck, which is what we often think. No, if you're brilliant, that's God's gift to you. And if you can work hard, that's God's gift to you too. He is the source of all the good you have, and he makes good promises. More, not only do we have these promises, we've heard God is unchanging. I, the Lord, do not change. And in his faithfulness, he's given that great gift that we remember at Christmas. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich yet for your sakes became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. In his faithfulness he has given us the great gift, Jesus, who does remove the curse from us and brings us to enjoy the blessing given to Abraham, who has enriched us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. So, is God saying to you tonight, you are robbing me? Think about it. Are you giving God what you owe him? And have you heard God say, test me, take me at my word, find me faithful, and know the joy, the joy of finding God, providing all that you need, not just to live, but all that you need to live a life which is rich in doing good, which stores up treasure in heaven and which brings honour and glory to your great Saviour. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have entrusted to us. We pray that you will give us good hearts that show that we know you, the unchanging God, the faithful, generous, kind God, who has committed himself to supply all the needs of his people. Make us zealous to be rich in doing good and to always be asking how we can use what you give us to bring honour to our Saviour's name. We ask this in his name. Amen.